there was a moment when I was walking into the chairman's office to discuss this role, and I I was sort of floating in on what I felt was borrowed confidence. I was floating in on this wave of of passion and, and excitement and enthusiasm, and at the time it felt to me borrowed because I have suffered for a long time, as so many people have, with imposter syndrome. And I got the job, and this this job is the first time in my entire career that I I feel as confident as I have faked it up until now. What had been borrowed confidence became actual confidence. Hey, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. And if you're a frequent listener, really appreciate it. Thanks for sticking with us. If you're new, welcome. Each week, we are talking to one woman. We're going deep into her story. These are women across all industries who are playing at the top of their game. And we're looking beyond the resume. We're looking at the decisions along the way, the trade-offs, the pivotal moments that have shaped their careers and their lives, the tough choices that, you know what, aren't always obvious. Sometimes you have two options in life and they may both look great or they might both look bad. And these women have been there. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. All right, No Limits. Today we have with us the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan magazine. By the way, that's the first time I've said the full Cosmopolitan. I think Cosmo. Okay, she's shaking her head. Yes. Uh, (laughs) It is the largest young women's media brand in the world. They reach 81 million readers, the largest circulation of any Hearst magazine. She launched a total site redesign in May of 2018. It made Cosmo more user-friendly and visually appealing. She got her start in the industry as an intern. She's worked for Mary Claire. Teen Vogue, Glamour, and she's also been published in The New Yorker and Vogue. And this year, she was named by Advertising Age's annual Women to Watch, Jessica Pels. Hello. Welcome to No Limits. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have you with us. You know, there's a lot of, we're going to get into a lot of stuff today. And I know this is probably how so many interviews start off for you. Like you're so young to be in all these roles. (laughs) And I hope that's not annoying. Does Does that annoy you at all? It doesn't. I actually, my girlfriends and I were talking about this this weekend. I feel like, I hope at least, that we're a generation who doesn't care as much about, um, doesn't at least carry that fear of getting older. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Because we see so many powerful women uh, you know, throughout their lives, we were we were talking about Meryl Streep, the icon that is Meryl Streep, and how she is so vibrant and so powerful. And uh, we all just basically wish we could be her. But um, the there's age, time. There's time. We'll all become Meryl Streep eventually, I hope. But the age thing doesn't bother me in a way. I guess it's sort of a compliment. Yeah, no, it's I I definitely think of it as a compliment. That is why that is something I included in the intro <laughs> to you. It's actually. So this is a total diversion. I promise we're going to come back to you, Jessica, because you're a fascinating person as well. But I was giving some thought today to this idea that women, for example, in the Meryl Streep generation, they of all generations, in terms of the working and career women, in my opinion, have had it the hardest. I think about this idea that, um, in, for example, with my mom, she was one of the only working women at right. the time. And she was one of the only working moms at the time. And and there are so many women who didn't even think about pursuing motherhood, maybe because 
who were professionals, maybe because they didn't have examples, maybe because they thought it would be uh, a hindrance. I can't speak for them. But this idea that now it's it's such a different world in many ways. Oh, yeah. And I think that's how you get to some of the, the fundamental philosophical differences between third and fourth wave feminists, which is that that generation of women they had to fight to survive and succeed in a man's world. And so the rules of their game were very different from the rules of the game that young women want to play now, which is much more intentionally female-friendly and is not, I will succeed in spite of my femininity, but I will succeed because Mm -hmm. of my femininity. Mm -hmm. Such a good point. So you grew up in a a suburb outside of Atlanta. Yes, no one actually grows up in Atlanta. (laughs) Suburbs outside, correct. Was this a dream of yours to work for a magazine someday? It's it's funny that you ask. I don't know that I could have imagined that I would ever land here. And I don't think I knew. I was immensely ambitious. And I knew that I wanted to be successful and to be good at what I did. Um, And I think my entire life up until now has been trying on different skills and trying to find where I am most effective and where I am best, where my talents sort of come together in the best combination. Um, And what that all comes down to for me is storytelling. Throughout my entire life, everything I've ever tried has been um, in the effort of telling a story and connecting with a reader or an audience. I, I grew up doing ballet. That's how I an- landed in New York. And um, that's a form of storytelling. I went to film school. That's a form of storytelling. Journalism is another form of storytelling. And magazines are just such a satisfying combination of pace and topic. And I love working for young women. They, um, I say all the time that they are the hardest boss to work for because they have very high expectations and very high standards. Young women know everything. And I don't say that in a snarky way. I say it because it's true. They are engaging with all kinds of media all day, every day. They know everything that's out there. So to please them, to impress them means you really have to jump a lot of hurdles. And that keeps me on my toes. So that's sort of how I landed here. I wouldn't say it was a, a, it certainly wasn't a linear path. So you started out as an intern. How early did you have it in your mind that EIC, that title, (laughs) Editor-in-Chief, was something you wanted. (sighs) Um, Probably since forever because the reason I actually didn't go into ballet, didn't continue with ballet, is because I got to a point, I was 18, and I knew I was good. I was good enough to come to New York City and to dance for the summer with American Ballet Theater, but I wasn't good enough to be a star. I wasn't good enough to um, be the best. How did you feel about that? That was very difficult, especially because I'd spent my entire life in this immensely competitive field. I spent so many hours, you know, when you're a serious ballet dancer, you are leaving school. Let's say you're in high school or middle school. You're leaving school at three or four o'clock. You're going straight to the studio and you're in class and rehearsal every single day of the week until nine or 10 p.m. Then you go home and then you do your homework weekends all day, every day in the studio. So that's the the amount of time that I had sunk into this. Um, and it was really hard to be mature enough with myself to acknowledge that I wouldn't be able to get what I wanted out of it. I guess that was my first moment of thinking about return on my investment. And um, hmm. I I felt like if I couldn't be the best, I would be frustrated forever. How did you get to that point? Was there 
a process? Was it the 18 years old and now there's college and various things like that that were sort of starting to percolate? Or was it more of a journey that was happening inside of you? I'm thinking about this because I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I think I'm sort of constantly assessing myself and I'm very competitive both with in, inside myself and, and um, with everyone around me. And so I think I'm constantly self-tuning mm-hmm. and assessing whether I'm performing to my own standards. And so perhaps with ballet, it was just a very gradual process of me feeling like I was continually letting myself down and deciding that that wasn't a healthy way to be and that I should find something else that was satisfying and that I could really succeed in. So your very first job mm-hmm. is at the New Yorker as an intern. What did you think? What were your first impressions? Oh, my God. I fell in love. I fell in love. I had no idea what the magazine world would be like. My only exposure to it was, you know, movies. And um, <laughs> I have to confess that I am a total nerd. I took Latin for years. I uh, <laughs> I know. I know. I took Latin for six years. Vani Vidi Vici? Yes, exactly. Um, That's what people probably always say after you say, I learned Latin. They're like, I'm brilliant. <laughs> we came, we saw, we conquered. That's right. We did. Canis um, Libris. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I'm a total nerd at heart. And so being there was heaven because these are the smartest people you've ever met or read in your entire life. And they're walking around and it's kind of exactly like what you think. They're all wearing sweatshirts and jeans and they're all very studious and they have using big words. Yes. They have intellectual discussions out in the hallways. And I felt so intellectually nourished being there mm. and also very well taken care of in terms of my career. My this my my pinch me moment when I was at that stage in my life was in my internship. I, I helped uh, Richard Brody, who's the film critic there. He's still there. So many people are because once you get to The New Yorker, you don't leave. And he uh, had been working on a book about Jean-Luc Godard, the French filmmaker, He had just finished it. It was coming out while I was there. And because I had done such a great job organizing his DVD collection, (laughs) he invited me (laughs) to his book launch party, which just so happened to be at David Remnick's house. Now, David Remnick is the editor, the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker. Brilliant, brilliant man. And so I found myself an intern. I must have been 21 I, I know I could legally drink because I did. <laughs> um, but I found myself standing in David Remnick's apartment with Richard Brody, with all of these brilliant minds, looking around and thinking, I cannot believe that I'm here. And if I can succeed in this world at this level, I really want to. So I sort of got the bug. And from there, I interned at um, at Vogue, which was also at the same company. So basically, your internship ended. Is yes, that how as you, they because, all do. Because, so you didn't say, oh, I'd like to continue working here? I wanted to, but I was still in college. I was a sophomore. So I, I wanted to obviously get the degree my parents were, you know, paying for. So I um, I had to move on to another internship. And what I did was while I was at The New Yorker, I went to HR at the company and I said, hey, I love this company. I love it here. Here's my resume. I would love to intern at another magazine and get a sense for how things work elsewhere. Um, I was lucky that there was an opening at Vogue. And so um, so I jumped to Vogue for the next semester, which was a totally different experience, but also exactly like what the magazine is. These, you know, it's full of like sophisticated, chic women who are so worldly and experienced. And it the was the devil wears Prada. <laughs> um, I, you know, I guess that had come out right before I got there. 
Um, they had just shot the September issue, which is about the making of, you know, the infamous September issue. But it was it was also so satisfying in its own totally different way. And I think from there I was an addict. Internships are obviously very useful to anyone listening. All people, most people got at least they figured out either what they wanted to do or what they definitely did not want to do because of internships. How did you turn those internships into something full time? So I did the same thing with HR. And I tell every intern that I do an informational with now or or do an interview with, I tell them that they must do this. I say, print out your resume. I know this is the digital era, but print out your resume while you're still in the internship because you're in the building. You've got the email address. This is the time of leverage. Go and meet with HR and tell them how much you love the company. This is something that not enough candidates do anywhere, I think. It's so rare that I have a job candidate who says, I love what you do. I love this place. Be passionate. That's Mm -hmm. That's really why I think I am where I am now and how I think I've succeeded is that I'm passionate and I show that to people. So go to HR, say, I love this company. Um, and I would really like a full-time job. I'm graduating. These are the brands that I'm interested in. That's exactly what I did. They were um, they were in a hiring freeze at the time because I graduated in December of 2008. Ooh. Not a good, I know, not a good moment. So um, I spent six months at a charity doing communications for them, um, sort of biding my time and just hoping that I would hear from HR. And I followed up. Not too often, but I followed up. And uh, and then I well, how often is not too often? <laughs> uh, every month and a half with a one or two liner, always a cute little joke and nothing that required a response. Mm-hmm. Critical. Mm-hmm. So did you have one person in HR that you were sending these notes to? I did. Because so you had a contact yes, that you had established. A relationship. And were you um, resending your resume with these notes? Were you, you knew this person well enough? Were you just kind of replying all to every time, just a reminder, like, so they could see the previous messages? So I think, and I guess this is maybe more strategic than I even realized at the time. But when I met with her that first time and I told her, I want a job here, I've interned at two two magazines here. I want to work. I want to stay here. Um, I I tried to find out something personal, just something she liked, and I found out she really liked Downton Abbey. <laughs> and so <laughs> you became a Downton Abbey fan. <laughs> and so um, or every you found out how to Google it. No, I'm kidding. Right. <laughs> and so every time I emailed her, I like mentioned something about it, just something little. Or I would say, Hey, I saw that you know Vogue just published this piece, and I loved it, and here's why. So just a little mm-hmm. nugget of something personal and connective. And um, I'm not going to say that that's why I got the job, but I do think it's why she thought of me when uh, the position opened up to work for Cindy Levy at Glamour. She was the editor-in-chief at the time. She needed an assistant. And honestly, I think because I knew how their expense system worked, (laughs) I think that's why they brought me in. Because you were doing that for the charity, their expense system, or or just because you had been an intern and you had done – I knew the mailroom. I knew that, you know, that's half the battle. Yeah, that's true. It's easier. It's it's faster. Okay, that's fantastic. So how long were you an assistant? I was an assistant, technically just an assistant for a year and a half. Okay. Um, And... That was such a satisfying job. It's. I was just telling my assistant this now that it was the only time in my career when I had a definitive way of knowing if I was doing the job well. When you're an assistant, you can check off boxes. I did this. <laughs> I did that. I 
you know, predicted this need of hers and she was happy about that. And you can go home at the end of the day and feel like I did it. <laughs> it's There's a finite satisfaction to it that I just was found really pleasurable. But um, so I did that for a year and a half. And then Cindy, um, who is such a great advocate of mine through my career, she promoted me to assistant editor. And that means that in that role, I sort of did both. I, I still did her calendar. I still helped her out. And I also got to edit more, which was so exciting. And then the real the real leap. She promoted me to associate editor, and and that meant I left her office. I went I went to my own desk across the floor, and we both felt like I was just sort of, um, you know, finally flying out of the nest, and it was bittersweet. But um, so I did that for another year, another year and a half. What are the steps? And did you have a sense of what the steps were that you would need to take to become editor in chief? Uh. And you asked a while ago when I thought EIC, and I didn't answer it. When I thought EIC was the second I fell in love with magazines. I was like, if I'm going to be here, if I'm going to do this, I want to be. I want to be at the top. I want to um, get to that level. And so I think I always had that fire. Um, the thing about magazines is that they're incredibly linear, or they were at the time. Mm. This was back before the internet was as huge a presence in the media landscape as it is now. So it was very clear. You're uh, an assistant. You're an assistant editor, an associate editor. Then you're an editor. Then you're a senior editor. Then you're a deputy editor. Then you're an executive editor. And then you're an editor-in-chief. And as you go up that chain, the the pool gets winnowed down. And eventually, there are only a few people at that level. Um, It doesn't necessarily work like that anymore because there's so many platforms. And we're working across so many different um, storytelling tools that it's not quite as linear as it used to be. Um, so yeah, I started to climb that ladder when I was at Glamour. Gotcha. And was there ever a point along the way where you wondered, am I sitting in the current role that I'm in for too long? Do I need to be more aggressive and push for the next thing? Constantly, constantly. And the funny thing is looking back on it now at the time I moved up really fast. Yeah. And the reason I was able to do that is because I had in Cindy, in the editor in chief, I had the most powerful person at the magazine advocating on my behalf and making sure that she was doing right by my career. And what a lucky thing for me to have her in my corner. Um, so I moved up really fast. The the assistant editor before me, I think it took her five years to get that job. And so but then when I was in it, you know, when you're a young person fighting for your career, my God, it feels like everything takes forever. Um, one of my best friends and I, um, Caitlin Menza, we worked together at Glamour, and we used to just talk all the time about our trajectory and the timeline and when do we get to this stage and when do we move on to the next one. And it's amazing how much um, emotional energy I expended on that when I was younger. Do you feel like when you think about the future in the role that you're currently in, do you feel like we're going to be reading magazines on paper 10, 15, 20 years from now? I do. And um, (laughs) I feel funny about being the one saying this because it sounds (laughs) self-serving because I am the editor-in-chief of, of, uh, in part, a print magazine. Um, But I do. And I think it's because we're headed for a time as a culture when we will realize that just because we can get all of our content digitally doesn't mean that we want to or that we should. 
Because the thing about being in a phone is it's it's not a space that you control. It's a space that controls you. You can be reading a story you want to read on your phone, right? And then you get a notification, text. yeah, right. or a text or whatever. And then you jump to that. Mm-hmm. And then you realize you have to go back to your email and, oh, my God, your boss sent this thing that you have to respond to. And that jumps you over to this other app. And it's it's a hard space to um, to be intentional about using. And the thing about a magazine is that you can't get a push notification. And I think we've talked a lot as a culture about wellness. I think we will talk a lot more as a culture about how um, our consumption habits have to do with that wellness. And so I do think there's a future for print magazines. And there are also things that print magazines do really well that nothing else can. Um, You know, beautiful photography, experiential content. um, It's better in print. It just is. So I think there's a restorative value to it. I think there's a content value to it. Um, there's kind of a prestige cool factor to it. One thing we talk about at Cosmo is the the vintage cool of our brand. And looking at a vintage Cosmo is like so fun. And I have them out <laughs> on my coffee table at home. And it's just sort of a cool uh, thing to have around. And I think that tactile um, nature of magazines is is part of the appeal and then lastly, there is no form of media that ever fully dies. Hmm. Like, think about it, right? TV was supposed to kill the radio. It didn't. Um, here we are on the radio in a different format, right? Yep. It's it not- just gets resuscitated, but in a new format. Yes. It sort of hits rock bottom, maybe. <laughs> and then some really brilliant or maybe not so brilliant, but enterprising individuals come in. Yes. Rethink it. Yes. Take the tools and yes. the resources of the last thing and then make it into something new. Exactly. That's that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Oh, interesting. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. Well, I, th- because part of why I asked you that question is that from everything that I've read about you, so much of your story is around data and analytics. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, a lot of the things you've talked about don't have anything to do with those areas. And clearly there's more to it than just that. Yes. But your understanding of data and analytics are what have helped propel Cosmo as a brand um, into a very successful realm. Mm-hmm. How did you learn that stuff? It it kind of all starts with my dad, actually, because my dad is an educator. He um, He's a consultant who helps teachers um, be better teachers, get better results out of their students, which is a fascinating field. Um, that very few people do. And um, what I picked up from him was this very sort of healthy perspective through life that you need to know, you deserve to know, everyone deserves to know what rubric they're being graded against. You deserve to know what your boss expects of you in terms of success. That's huge for the success of companies, I think, too. Huge. Yeah. And it's hard. We've all been managed by people who don't know. And that is difficult because there's no way to deliver. You have no deliverable because they don't know what they want from you. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's the genesis of all of that for me is thinking about um, how will I be able to measure my own success? And data is this beautifully concrete way of looking at reach and looking at scale and um, I- I'm, I guess I'm sort of notorious in, in my group of colleagues for whenever we talk about a new initiative or a new project, um, the, the, I make sure before we walk out of the room to say, okay, but what's the KPI? What's the key performance indicator? How are we going to determine whether this worked or not? And then that's what we strategize about how to deliver against. So 
that for me is what data really is, is identifying what your goal is and then measuring whether you got there. It's so fascinating to think about in the con- that in the context of a creative field like, um, you know, content and like mm-hmm. writing and editing. But that's the beauty of it to me. That's why it's so satisfying um, is that you can see how many people read your story. You can identify why that story did so well and why the the other one you you published in, in tandem didn't. Um, and that makes you smarter and better. And so we're very nimble as a group at Cosmo and we're very, very, very attuned to our audience, to what is working for them and why. I think not a lot, not enough people ask, why did that work? Why did that succeed? Um, why did I get that promotion? So that you are aware and cognizant of um, what you should amplify. Mm -hmm. How do you balance that with things that you believe in your gut should be part of the content mix? For example, Mm. um, I, I cover business and technology and personal finance is a part of that. And I know that if I were to say, hey, everyone, you can live your best life and you don't have to save and you don't have to pay down your debt, and here's a way that you, like, you can do all of those things, and you can have it all, and you can have your cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. I know that that headline, and maybe a story that doesn't actually live up to to making for a truly better life for people, that that would do better than, um, here's the secret to life. You, uh... (laughs) Forgo pleasure. <laughs> you work really hard. You don't have your cake on many occasions. Mm-hmm. Like, but I know that the the story. I mean, I'm not I'm not advocating for living um, a life in in a dark corner and and having no pleasure or happiness in it. But I know <laughs> and recognize that that story is more um, real and honest than the other one. But the other one probably would get more. Um, at least initial reaction from people and more clicks. Yes, but so here's the thing. The second story, which we're saying is capital M, capital I, more important. If only 10 people see that story, did it do its job? So my challenge, because I agree, there are things that we have to talk about. You're that, thinking about framing. That's Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Like find a, find a palatable way to share that story not or even, not palatable. Right. For me, it's not about a clever, pa- creative, yes, smart, grabby, something yeah. interesting. Yeah. The thing is, like, I've been a consumer of media and women's media my entire life. And I've heard it all like my audience. I've heard it all. So in order to get me really interested I I need to um, be lured with more than what I know already. So that, I think, is really the challenge. And I think the bar for that is much higher on content that people might not naturally want to read about. Makes total sense. Okay. Um, on a, a serious note, but a slightly less serious note, how did <laughs> you ultimately then seal the deal to become editor-in-chief what was the was there a defining moment take us in the context of the moment before Mm. you got that title we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor hey i'm andy mitchell a new york times best-selling author and i'm sabrina kohlberg a morning television producer 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. How did you ultimately then seal the deal to become editor-in-chief? What was the, was there a defining moment? Take us in the context of the moment before Mm. you got that title. In a way, I feel like I've been earning this job or trying to earn this job my entire career. I respect that. Yes. Um, and, And also, I've been working for my boss, Kate Lewis, and her boss, Troy Young, for about five years now. So they've seen me through, this is my third job with them. So they know me well and they know my hustle and they know how much I how much I care and how much I put into my work. So in a way, I feel like when they hired me back in 2014, I started the interview process for a job like this. Um, and you don't get I think it. that's how you have to think about it, by yeah, the way. Yeah, you do. Absolutely. It's like dressing for the job you want. It's It's instead of that, it's you know, operate at the level of the job that you want all the time. Um, And I think one does not get a job like this quickly. Um, It takes a lot of time. Um, There was a moment when I, uh, I was walking into the chairman's office to discuss this role. And I, I was sort of floating in on what I felt was borrowed confidence. I was floating in on this wave of of um, of passion and and excitement and enthusiasm. And at the time, it felt to me borrowed because I have suffered for a long time, as so many people have, with imposter syndrome. And um, and I got the job. And this this job is the first time in my entire career that I I feel as confident as I have faked it up until now. Does that make sense? So mm. what had been borrowed confidence became actual confidence. What was the transition? Why do you think that happened? I think part of it is validation. That I've been fighting to prove that I can do a job like this for my entire career. And now I know that the people who matter believe me, that they agree that I can and that they're going to let me. And I think that that in and of itself was a really powerful thing. I also think that once I got into the role and started to, I'm not going to say get comfortable because um, I don't really ever get comfortable in a role. <laughs> um, are you familiar with Susan Zerinsky? Mm-hmm. Yes. Of course. Yes. Um, she. I used to work with her at CBS. Oh, God, I yeah. love her. She's wonderful. She is. And she's so inspiring, um, the new president of CBS News. And she... Um, one of the things I love that she she says is that she is terrified all the time. <laughs> and she tells everyone that. And everyone knows it. And she uses that to fuel herself. She thinks that's part of her success. Mm-hmm. She's more scared than anyone else. And so she'll prepare more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I feel a bit of that also. <laughs> um, but so once I got into the job and started doing things with it, things that were successful, things that were exciting, things that people were really into, I I was able to drop the imposter syndrome and allow the confidence to um, to come forward. So were you feeling imposter syndrome, for example, as an intern at The New Yorker and at Vogue? 
I don't know that I was aware enough. <laughs> I don't know that I was aware enough as an intern to feel that way, but I certainly did when I started having actual jobs. So when you started in your actual jobs and you're feeling this imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. you say that you're sort of using borrowed confidence, how did that work? How did that look? It's, you know, it's sort of the classic fake it till you make it. You intellectually knew that you were ready, but there was a part of you that still wondered maybe the rest of the people in this room know more than I do. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So we, I was looking at this last night. It's not something I would typically know off the top of my head, but um, okay. So imposter syndrome was a, a term coined by psychologists in the 1970s, 1978, I think. And the definition is something like um, high achieving people who are incapable of internalizing their achievements and live in perpetual fear, something like this, of um, being outed as a fraud. When I read that last night, I was like, oh, my God, that is exactly what it is. And the thing is, um, internalizing achieve- inability to internalize achievements is such a huge piece of it that we don't talk about. We all talk about the whole, like, oh, I'm afraid people are going to think I don't know what I'm doing. I'm afraid I don't know what I'm doing. But we don't, as a culture, discuss that first piece, which I think is really important, Um with a close friend of mine, I've, I've talked before about how I forget compliments. I let compliments fly mm-hmm. right through me. But criticism, I hang on to. I worry over. I you know think about for days and days and days. And I think a lot of us do that. And there are a lot of different reasons. For me, it's that I guess I've thought that hanging on to confidence is what makes a person uh, – rather, hanging on to compliments is what makes a person cocky. Um, oh, really? Yeah, where hanging on to criticism is what makes a person grounded better. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's where I was coming from. There but- has to be, by the way, and I'm, I haven't thought I haven't thought as, as deeply about this particular <laughs> idea, the hanging on to compliments versus not. But there's got to be a happy medium there. Yes, there's got to be. Yes. Like, you know, we, we can all be better in that zone, probably. And and some people can be better on the like cocky side, and other people can be better on the um, confidence side. Totally. I mean, I think women suffer from this um, more because of the way that culture is set up to empower men to be confident and to expect men to be confident and to expect women to, in certain ways, um, defer. Which right. Or to look sucks. down on the confidence if it if it yes. do, if it feels foreign. Yes. Okay, so now that you're here and you feel less of that imposter syndrome and part of it was the validation from Mm -hmm. outside, where is that inside voice now for you? And have you learned in some ways to quiet the – have you learned in in moments to quiet the doubt or or does the doubt not maybe even come up as much because of the external validation – it's it's the latter thing. It's that the doubt doesn't come up as much, but I don't I don't really want to credit it all to external validation because the it's almost like it, it was internal validation by way of external validation. Mm-hmm. It was the world confirming that it it knew that I was right about what I could do. And so maybe that's the way I think about this more is that instead of hanging on to specific compliments, I add that 
positivity to my bank of I can do this. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, right. You're you're ninety nine point nine 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 percent certain and probably were for much <laughs> well in advance of the, the actual title being offered to you that you could do that job. But there's that small percent of you that's like, well, but I, I should actually try doing the job just to confirm <laughs> that all of my instincts about myself are accurate. Exactly. It's it's interesting. I think sometimes about the fact that um, statistically men get more jobs than women. And more high-level jobs than women, not because they're more qualified, but because they apply for more jobs that they are not qualified for than women do. We tend to hold ourselves to a standard of, oh, that one bullet point on that list of 50 bullet points I don't have and therefore they won't look at me so I shouldn't even try. The thing is, as a boss, I wish more people knew this about hiring managers, when we're writing a job description, we're writing the platonic ideal of who we're looking for. We know we're not going to get it. I know that there is no human who has every single quality that I'm putting on this list. I'm simply illustrating the kind of person I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And I know everyone I meet with will have some combination thereof and maybe throw me a curveball of some skill set I hadn't even thought of. um, That that, could blow you out of the water. Yes. Yes. Which I I think, too, is a little bit of, of... my own success is that I've, because I had a nonlinear path that took me through performance and theater and filmmaking and then magazines, and I think that means that at every job, I bring some skill to the table that isn't necessarily within that industry already, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. It makes total sense. And by the way, to your point about, uh, I I love the way that you illustrated the, the job postings mm-hmm. because I think I, I've never heard somebody talk about it from the hiring side as clearly as you just did. And I would say one of the best pieces of advice that my mom would give me a lot as a kid, I would want to apply for random things. I see something in the newspaper or hear about something and say, I want, I'm interested, you know, the way that kids are like, I'm interested, but you don't like <laughs> double down on it. Or at least I didn't necessarily. But I would look at the application and would say, oh, you need to have three years of sports experience or whatever it was. I don't know. And I'd be like, well, I don't have that. So never mind. Exactly. And and my mom would say to me, what are you talking about, Becky? Like, just what different what's the worst thing that can happen? Mm-hmm. Send in the application. If this is something you you really do want. Send in the application. See what they say about you. It might work out. It might not. But don't look at things based purely on whether or not you meet every piece of criteria. It's such such a wise point that you made. I would get along with her very well. <laughs> she would she would really love to to have a chat with you, Jessica. I'll put you guys in touch. Um <laughs> what what is the worst advice that you've received along the way? Not the best, but the worst. Oh, there's been, there's been a, a, there's a lot to choose from. <laughs> no, I for me personally, in my industry, I think one piece of bad advice that I have gotten and that I hear get tossed around quite a bit is, um, and this again is personal, I know it's worked for some people, but it's to get a graduate degree in journalism. That, uh, my dad, bless his heart, he, you know, um, again, that's the Atlanta, that's my, the Atlanta suburbs coming out, bless his heart. I know, and an educator, he, um, you know, he, he really thought that a graduate degree is something I needed. In certain fields, you do. Um, and I still hear it now. Back when I graduated college in 2008, it was very 
Um, a lot of people did that because the economy was bad. There was no, there wasn't a lot of hiring happening, especially in media, and so people bided their time by going to grad school, um, which I get uh, now. I think, especially from my perspective, just get into the workforce. Mm-hmm. Don't accrue even more debt. Yes. <laughs> get into the workforce. Learn it on the job. That's what I did. I did not go to J school. I t- I took journalism classes in college, but I have a film degree in film production. I learned magazine making on the job from the editor-in-chief and not even necessarily direct directly. It's not like she sat me down and said, okay, here's how you edit a story. It's more like I passed her papers back and forth every day for a year and a half and I read everything. I read everything. I studied everything. I eavesdropped. Sorry, Cindy. I eavesdropped. <laughs> I absorbed. I absorbed everything I possibly could. That's the beauty of being an assistant, by oh, the way. Oh, God, yes. Uh, I, I, I never was, and my producer, Taylor Dunn, was an assistant, and I always, I, I always look at what her initial years were like, and I'm envious of that because when you are an assistant, you see so much. Yes. And especially when you're an assistant to somebody in a senior role, you you see how the world works Yes, because you're seeing it through their perspective. And when I started, I, I started in a completely different role. And I sometimes wished that I could really understand how the world works because I was dealing with my own imposter syndrome, mm. but I didn't have somebody in that proximity to me mm-hmm. who I could look at and say, well, like, what am I saying about what's happening on your calendar right now? <laughs> right, right. Again, that comes back to the sort of like concrete task that yeah. you can do and know that you've done well. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that you say that about imposter syndrome in regards to proximity to power like that, because I don't know I don't know that she and I ever explicitly talked about imposter syndrome. I don't think I was self-aware enough to even know that that's what it was back then. Um, but... It did occur to me at some point later on in my career that um, everyone has it to some degree. And it was sort of it was sort of a seeing the audience in their underwear moment when I realized that, like, wait a second, everyone else in this conference room also is worried that their ideas are bad. And some (laughs) of them are. (laughs) I actually do this thing with my staff um, where whenever we're starting a brainstorm and we do a lot of them all day, every day, um, you know, I'll, I'll set us up. I'll say, OK, this is what we're we're here to do. This is where we were before. This is what we need to achieve in this meeting. Um, let's start kicking some ideas around. It's always crickets, right? Because everybody's nervous about saying let's the talk first about thing. all the bad ideas. Yes. Yeah, so I say bad ideas first. I love that. Yes. And it's it's fun. It gets people laughing they're never really that bad. And even the ones that are, some people are like, no, wait, this is really bad. It's almost like a contest to have a bad idea, which is fun. But there's always the seed of a good idea and a bad idea. And if you're working for someone good, if you're working with people who are smart, they see that seed and they take it and they develop it into what becomes a great idea. Anyway. That is so smart. (laughs) I'm going to do that. Do it. Yeah. It's really fun. And I, I would imagine that at least once, a bad idea was the good idea oh, that ultimately became the thing. Yes, five-minute meeting. You're like, oh, done. That's it. <laughs> Jessica Pels, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. This was so fun. Thank you. Okay, it is the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week, we're highlighting Alexa Carlin. She's an entrepreneur and the founder of WEX, which stands for Women Empower Expo. Here she is to tell you more. 
Hi, my name is Alexa Carlin, and I'm the founder and CEO of the Woman Empower X. My biggest challenge has definitely been my health journey. I started my first business when I was 17, and at 21, I had this crazy near-death experience that led me to being induced into a medical coma, given a 1% chance of living. But after this, I was actually diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, which is something I live with day in and day out. And it's not something I can actually overcome, but I've turned this obstacle into an opportunity. I didn't wait for something to change, but instead I changed my own life. This led me to sharing my story vulnerably, authentically, and finding the inspiration to start the Woman Empower X, seeing that more women, more diverse women, need to connect and collaborate, break down the walls, get vulnerable, get real, and support one another on our pursuit towards our dreams, towards building businesses and making a difference. So that's definitely been my hardest challenge that I still deal with today, but it's also the biggest blessing in my life. Congratulations, Alexa. Wishing you continued success. Listeners, remember you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Alexa about creating and growing wax. If you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits entrepreneur, you can send me those nominations at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, a shout out to the team that helps make this happen each and every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and thanks also to ABC Radio. We'll see all of you next week.